Good morning and welcome to the Gathering Church. It's so good to see you guys today. My name is John Mark Redwine. I'm the lead pastor and I just want to welcome you this morning. Man, we're so glad you're here. If this is your first time with us, welcome. You know, the Gathering is a place where we, 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 we believe you can belong before you believe. This is, this is a family for you this morning. We, we know folks are, are on a pathway, on a journey spiritually. And so our goal here at the Gathering is to come alongside you in that journey and lead you in this clear process to know God, find freedom, discover your purpose, and make a difference. And so that's who we are here. Uh, welcome. It is Labor Day weekend, the very last weekend of summer. Summer is officially over on Tuesday, so don't you even think about doing any summer things. You may not. It has concluded. I love Labor Day weekend uh, because I love summer. It's my favorite season. And Labor Day weekend is just kind of all about, it's like the last shopping day, Christmas Eve, you know, last shopping day before Christmas where you just try to pack everything in all at once as quick as you can. And so I said, tried to pack that sentence in without a breath. I didn't quite get it. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of. And so I, I love just doing all the summer things I can think of on Labor Day weekend. You know, it, it's the last chance to wear those white pants that you love so much. You know, don't even think about wearing them after Labor Day. White pants are, are not allowed. In fact, I'd encourage you to wear them tomorrow and just go all out. Eat some chocolate ice cream while you wear your, your white pants because, you know, they're going away until Easter. So, uh, man, we, we, love, uh, we love Summer at the Gathering. We're just finishing up uh, a series called Summer at the Gathering where over the last eight weeks... Uh, we've had conversations about different things and, and different topics based on what's been going on around here. And so uh, today we'll conclude that series. And then next Sunday we begin our first fall series called Identity. Man, I, I got to tell you that this, this series that we're beginning next week, Identity, is a series for now, for this time, for this season, for our city, for our culture, for our country I believe it's a series that, that you need, that I need, that your neighbors need, your friends need, your coworkers, your family members. I believe this series is important. We're going to take the next four weeks, starting next week, to study the life of Daniel, a man who, who, who did his best and even succeeded in, in finding his identity and who God said he hid, who God said he is in a world that was constantly trying to redefine him, in a culture that was constantly shifting and changing and swinging from one side to the other in a culture that was constantly telling him how to define himself. Daniel stood firm and loved well and identified himself and who God said he is. And so I want us to learn how to live like Daniel over the next four weeks, starting next week. So I would encourage you uh, to invite people. We've got invite cards in the, in the kiosk right outside these doors when you leave. Grab a few on your way out. And be a bringer. Bring somebody next Sunday. We, we are excited also next Sunday. Uh, it, it, we're going to start life group signups. And so next, next week we're starting life group signups. So this is the very last week to sign up to lead a life group. Don't miss this opportunity. I've had a lot of people come up to me with both some really good ideas and some really bad ideas for life groups. Listen, if that's you, I'm not going to tell you which one you were. Let me just encourage you to sign up to lead that life group. Don't miss this chance. We, we, are, we are expecting God to show up in the fall. We're expecting new faces and new people. We want to create room for them in our life groups. And so we would love to see some more names 
uh, on that list today. So as soon as you leave service, go right out to that table and sign up to lead a life group. And then finally, the last thing I want to share with you before I get started this morning is, is that uh, as we grow, our kids' ministry is bursting at the seams. If you've got kids and you were down there, you may realize there are a lot of children's underneath our feet right now. If they so chose to rise up against us, we would not stand a chance. They would win. <laughs> it's always been that way at the gathering. We, we value kids so much. We don't just babysit them. We don't run childcare. We invest in them. We let them know they're the future. We let them know God has a purpose and a dream for their lives. And I believe that reflects in the amount of kids we have in our kids' ministry. And so in order to make more room, I wanted to let you know that starting next week, when you come in here as a zombie in need of coffee, your coffee will be right up here in the foyer again. We're moving the cafe back into the foyer here, and then we'll be opening up the cafe down there as another, as another classroom for our kids. We're going to make room for what God's going to do in the fall. We're going to make room for more families, for more children, because we just will never be satisfied. We will never feel like there are enough kids receiving the love of Jesus at the gathering church. And so we're going to make some room. On that note, we would love it if you've ever dreamed about serving in kids' ministry. If you feel like that could be a part of your purpose, now's the time to sign up to serve. We never, ever, ever want our kids uh, to, to, to feel like they they're not getting the attention and the investment that they deserve. And so now's a great time to join our kids' ministry. Well, hey, I want to get started this morning. I've got one final thought on prayer for us. And so over the last few weeks, I've been talking about prayer uh, in our series of Summer at the Gathering. In fact, we just finished up a, a, a 21 days of prayer, a season of prayer. And I know that in 21 days of prayer, we were praying over some specific things. Maybe you were praying over some specific things. Maybe you were asking God for breakthrough or for fresh vision or to do something new in your life. Maybe you were asking God for healing or to deliver you from a struggle or whatever it may be. And I've heard a lot of stories of people who, who had those prayers answered. But I've also spoken to people who after 21 days of meeting with God felt like they received nothing but silence. And so today what I want to talk about is how we respond and what we do when God doesn't answer our prayers. And even I want to offer you some encouragement that just because you haven't heard it yet doesn't mean God's not going to answer. And so what we're going to study today is Ezra chapter 1. And here's, here's, here's where we're going next week. We're going to be talking about the life of Daniel. If you're not familiar with with ancient history, then uh, Daniel was um, a nobility in Judah, in Jerusalem. And when the Israelites went into exile for 70 years, Daniel was kicked out of his home and taken to another country, and he lived there for 70 years while no, none of them lived in the city of Jerusalem. Now, we're gonna, I'm going to explain what, that, what, what happened there in just a second, but here's the thing. That's, I'm going to talk about the beginning of that next week. Today, what I want to talk about is the end. I want to talk about the very end. I want to talk about where we end up. I want to talk about kind of, this is going to be a four-week series, and today would be kind of what probably should have been week five, but I want to start with it. Here's what you should know about me. I love the ending first, always, in all things. 
Well, I'm a big fiction novel reader. I love a fiction novel. I'm a big fan of Michael Crichton. Any Michael Crichton fans in the house? Come on, Jurassic Park. Come on, somebody. Timeline, sphere. That's so good. I love me some Michael. He's the best, was the best. God rest his soul. And so anyways, uh, when I do, when I get a new Michael Crichton book, is I, well, uh, you know, uh, not a new one. He passed on a few years ago. But anyways, when I get a Michael Crichton book I haven't read yet, I'll open it up and read the last three pages first. This drives my wife crazy. She does not like that I do this, but I need to know the ending so that I'm not stressed out about it the whole book, you know? I like to know if the book's going to be worth the effort in the end. Yeah, I like to know if I'm going to be rewarded for the weeks or or days I'm going to put into the reading of this book. I do the same thing with movies. Now, I've got a lot of friends that do not like spoilers for movies, and they get very upset at me anytime I see a movie before them because... I don't care. I, I, I love it when somebody tells me the ending before I see the movie. This all started in the sixth grade. Um, I, when I was in the sixth grade, a movie came out called The Sixth Sense. And my sister, I had not seen it in theaters, but my older sister did. And I was watching it in the living room one day, and she just passing through the room right in the beginning, in the, in the first scene with Bruce Willis and the little kid, she walks by and she goes, oh, Bruce Willis is dead the whole time, and then just keeps going. You'd think I'd be mad, but I was liberated. <laughs> no longer was I just, a, just, a, just a, a pawn in the plot that Hollywood had for me. I realized I could have control over my own destiny. And so now I get on Google and I look up the ending of every movie I go and see. This is who I am. I love to know the ending first. Now, maybe you're a little bit like me. Maybe you can relate. Maybe you're not the way I am with movies or books. But maybe you're that way with other things. Maybe when you're waiting for good news from the doctor, you like to know the ending first. Maybe you you were pregnant and and you went to the OB and on week four, you were asking what the gender of the baby was. It looks like a circle at this point, but you're certain if they look hard enough, they could figure it out. What gender is that? Is it a boy? Tell me. And and so maybe maybe you're like me there. Maybe you're like me in prayer. Maybe in your prayer life, you just want to know the ending first. And you beg God, and you you ask God for answers, and you ask Him for clarity, and you ask Him for vision, and you ask Him for breakthrough. Maybe you spent 21 days desperately crying out for something, and when you didn't get the answer you wanted, maybe your, your bargain shifted to God. If you would just tell me how it ends, then I'll be patient. If you would just help me know that the outcome is going to be okay, then I can wait longer. See, I think in some way or another, we all like to know the ending first. So today, I want to look at the ending of this, this story in the history of Israel. And I believe that we can learn something from this. Because I know how hard it is when you feel God's not answering your prayer. In fact, in this last week, since we ended 21 days of prayer, I've had several people come up to me and ask, what am I supposed to do now? What, what, what am I supposed to do when after 21 days of, of searching, God didn't answer. And the answer is just not easy because the answer is very simply this. Keep praying. Always pray with the faith and belief that God will answer. But learn to trust Him even when He doesn't. And believe that God can see a bigger picture than we can. That God has a plan and that ultimately it's good. Even if we never get to see much of the end result, the answer 
as difficult as it is when you're wondering what to do when God isn't responding, is to keep praying. To use a really cheesy acronym, the answer is to push. Pray until something happens. Keep praying and keep believing. In 596 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, the emperor of Babylon, one of the great first great world conquerors, invaded and conquered Jerusalem. He exiled their current king and put in power instead a king that would be subject to him, a king that would report to him and and be subject to Babylon. That king ruled for a few years, but around 586 B.C., that king rebelled against Babylon. So Nebuchadnezzar chopped his arms off and then took him into custody and exile back to the capital city to be seen by people. And then he destroyed the temple of God in Jerusalem. And then he destroyed much of the city. And he tore down the walls to leave the city vulnerable and open to attack. And he took all the people that were living in Jerusalem and he exiled them to the foreign countries that were also under Babylonian rule. And he took the nobility and all the, everyone in line for the throne, and everyone who, who was a, a descendant of David or one of the kings of the past, and he took them to Babylon to be integrated into his society. This was one of Nebuchadnezzar's dreams, was to have a, a society made up of the cultures of all the places he had conquered. And so he took Daniel and few of his friends with him to Babylon. And the rest of the people were simply kicked out of their homes with no real hope and no real future. And just like that, the Israelites' time in the promised land would never be the same again. Once the most powerful nation in the world, they were now exiled and occupied. And for them, their hope became thin. Their hope started to fade away. Because they were there for an entire generation, 70 years. 70 years. Imagine the prayers they must have prayed during that time. The cries they made. The pleas they made. There had been a pattern over the last couple centuries in Israel where they would be disobedient to God. God would send someone to oppress them, a foreign army, a foreign government. And then they would repent to God and say, God, we're sorry. And God would take the oppressors away and reestablish power and give them another chance. They were They were hoping this was one of those times. But decades began to pass. Seasons began to change. Generations began to die off. And as the older generation began to die in exile, I wonder what it was like for the generation coming up behind them. Psalm 137 was written by a Jewish exile during this period. Gives you a little bit of an insight into the the heart of these people during this time. It says... By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars, we hung our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Hope became thin. They were bitter. They were angry. They felt lost. I've been in a season like this before. 
You see, for years, I suffered from anxiety and depression. And when I gave my life to Jesus, I felt certain that that depression would leave me, that I would be free from it, that I would wake up the next morning after submitting my life to Him, feeling nothing but joy and peace and satisfaction and all the things that I felt I had been promised. And I remember the next day after I gave my life to Jesus, I woke up feeling different. I had hope in a place I had not had hope before. See, previously I would wake up and my kind of thought process was I make the world worse, I hurt the people around me, and I'm probably never going to get any better. And that next morning when I woke up, it was a different narrative. I, I had hope for the first time. I felt like I had purpose for the first time, like, like there was something better waiting for me. And yet, still, I, I felt hurt and broken and an emptiness, a, a nothingness where I thought the joy should be. I was still struggling with depression. And my prayers over that first year were focused in this area. They, it, it became one of the things that I, that, I, that I would cry out to God for. God, heal me of this. And I remember praying with such faith that I was certain that the next morning I would wake up feeling like sunshine and rainbows. But it didn't happen that way. I had to work a lot. I had, to, I, had to, I had to be vulnerable with people. I had to figure out what the causes were. What were the things inside me that were hurt that needed healing? I had to find freedom. And it was a process. And it was a journey. And it took a lot, it took a lot of work on my part and a lot of prayers that felt like they were not being answered. That felt like they were bouncing off the ceilings. But God had a plan for the process. I just couldn't see it. Even today, when I enter into a season where I feel my prayers are bouncing off the walls, I look at the promises in Scripture that I, feel, that I discovered in that first year of my life with Jesus. And I remember this. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. In all things... God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. Here's what I've learned so far. If it's not good, God's not done yet. If it's not good, God's not done yet. Let's read the description of this unbelievable answer to prayer that comes 70 years after the exile. Let's read this description to this answer to prayer, and I hope to give you a little bit of hope for your unanswered prayers this morning. Look at Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill... that, Just so we're clear, Cyrus, king of Persia, was not of Hebrew descent. He was not an Israelite. He was not Jewish. He did not know much of the God of the Jews. He was Persian. He was a Persian king, groomed to be a Persian king his entire life. He grew up in a pagan household. He was a conqueror. In fact, history tells us, they call him, in history, he's referred to as Cyrus the Great and is one of the first great world conquerors, better than Nebuchadnezzar before him. Persia conquered the Babylonian Empire to become one of the greatest in the world. A few generations after Cyrus, you would have uh, Xerxes in power, the dude with all the cool rings from the movie 300. So just to give you a little idea 
of what Cyrus is, right? He probably had like the nose thing that, that connected to, remember he had like a chain? It was, anyways. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts, in addition to all the freewill offerings. Verse 7 says, Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God. There was all these sacred items that God had told them to make when they were making, building the temple of Solomon. And Cyrus not only gave them the money to rebuild the temple, he gave them back everything that was taken from it. You see, even when it doesn't seem possible, God can answer our prayers. And so I want to look at this answer to prayer, and I want us to see a couple different things that the people who are living it would have noticed. First is this. It didn't happen when they wanted it to. It didn't happen when they wanted it to. After the first couple decades of unanswered prayers passed by, it must have begun to feel pretty hopeless to the Israelites who were in exile. Let's not forget that by this point, they had mostly given up hope. A generation has gone by. There are people my age who have grown up in exile and never even saw the temple of God. They do not even remember what it was like to be their own people group. They can't even remember a world that existed outside captivity. Their ability to worship God has been strained. You see, their religion, the, the ancient Jewish religion, centered around the temple and the Ark of the Covenant where the presence of God sat. They had no Ark. They had no temple. They could not worship the way they had always worshipped. Their relationship with God began to be strained. There were laws in place preventing them from freely worshipping God. And so not only were they forgetting what it was like to worship in the temple, they were not allowed to simply pray to their God. There weren't Bibles in wide circulation where they could read the words of the prophets and be encouraged. It was just stories told by previous generations who I imagine were telling them less and less frequently as the generations went by. Hopelessness was king. They were beginning to feel that their God had abandoned them that these prayers were impossible. Maybe some of them were patient. There was a prophecy 
that they would be in exile for exactly 70 years. The prophet Jeremiah, six years before they were exiled, told them that this would happen. But Jeremiah was hated amongst his people. His message was one of conviction. He warned them of exile, of of being in captivity. He warned them of God punishing them for the way they had been living. And so naturally, not a very popular guy, Jeremiah. Most people discredited him, discredited his prophecies, said they weren't true, said they weren't real. And by the time they started to see them lived out, it was too late. And so many people would not have leaned on these prophecies that we can see today. And even as they prayed and asked God to deliver them, they must have had so many doubts. Because what if God does free us from this exile? We have no more money. We, we have no nation. We have no people. There's no, there's no way we could rebuild the temple. We don't have the resources. How could this even happen? It just feels impossible. It feels too late. It feels like feels like even if God said yes, there wouldn't be a way. You see, oftentimes our prayers and the answers to our prayers seem impossible for a number of reasons. But God can still answer your prayers even if it feels impossible. God can still answer your prayers even if you think it's too late. God can still answer your prayers even if you think you stopped listening a long time ago. Even if it seems hopeless. Even if your hope has faded, His faith in you has not. God can still answer your prayers. When we came here to start this church in 2015, we had an all-in budget of $124,000 to start this church the way we felt called to start it. And we believed, I believed, that God would provide every penny of that before we moved to this city. But in the summer of 2015, our, our families that were a part of the initial team, we left our jobs, we left our houses, we left the places we had always lived, and we moved to this city with nothing but $24,000 in the bank account to start this church. We were nearly there. God just didn't provide exactly what we thought. We were $100,000 short. And we didn't know how God would provide. We couldn't see an answer. You see, uh, the way that most churches, when they get started, raise the finances to start their church is by going to other churches and asking them to partner with us, kind of like our church does. Our church gives a large amount of money each month to new churches starting all over our country. In fact, we're about to launch our network, the Association of Related Churches, is going to be launching a couple dozen churches over the next three weeks, and our church is a part of that, which is exciting. Except when we were going around asking folks to partner with us, most people knew that In Asheville, churches died, they didn't thrive. And so nobody wanted to give to that. And so we didn't see how God would ever provide what we needed to get this thing off the ground. I thought God would provide by the fall. That was my prayer, was we're here in the summer, God will provide everything we need by the fall. He did not. In September, we had our first meeting with the company that we purchased all our equipment from, from the church, and they sent us the quote for that equipment, it was $110,000, 30 grand more than we had budgeted. We had to make a few cuts to that. And at that time, we had about $60,000 in the bank. And I remember laying in bed at night or sitting up, rocking our newborn baby and, and thinking, oh my goodness, what have I gotten us into? What have I gotten these families into? What, what's going to happen here? How is God going to provide here. I believed that God would have provided everything we did by need, needed by now, and He did not. 
And I just remember feeling more and more like it was impossible. And it seemed impossible. But God did it. Provision came bit by bit, one small deposit at a time. By February of 2016, when we started this church, we had raised $168,000. God is good. Enough to launch this church and to have enough in the bank account to get us through the lean months that were coming as a brand new church. Here's what I've learned about impossible prayers. Even the most unlikely answers to our prayers are simply commonplace to God. Even the most difficult prayers that we pray are easy for God to answer. We just have to trust His timing and His plan and His ways. The second thing they would have noticed about this answer to prayer was that it didn't happen how they expected it to. It didn't happen how they expected it to. Look again at verses 2 through 4. This is the decree that went out to the entire nation. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. This man did not care about worshiping at that temple. God just said, I'm going to use you to do this. Whoever you think God can't use to answer your prayers, you need to allow God to answer your prayers the way he's going to answer your prayers. Don't say no for somebody else. God can do it. It says in verse 3, Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem and Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors are now living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. It became a law that if you had a Jewish person living in your town, you had to give them what they needed to rebuild the temple of God. This was very unlikely. This was not the answer that they expected. This, this man, Cyrus, was a Persian who did not worship Yahweh, and yet God used him. He was a pagan king and a conqueror, and yet he is moved by God to answer a prayer. Cyrus was unlikely but God still used him. Listen, the impossible prayer that you are praying only feels impossible because you can't see what God can see and you haven't thought of the outcome He has already prepared. But God can use anyone in any circumstance to, to execute His plan. When you've been praying for something so long that it feels like your hope is beginning to fade and you can't see a favorable outcome, Keep praying. The Israelites were praying for freedom from captivity, but maybe they began to realize that if they were freed, they had nowhere to go. What if God answered that prayer? What would they do? They had no more money as a nation. They had no means to do what, God, what they were asking God to do. But they kept praying. And God provided every penny they need. God had a plan. Even if you can't imagine how, God can provide it. Third thing is this, it wasn't what they expected. God answered this prayer, but it wasn't what they expected. It's worth mentioning that in this story, the Israelites received a miraculous answer to their prayer to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. But this answer was not the one that they had asked for. You see, God answered their prayer, but it was not what they wanted. They did return and rebuild the temple. 
But the thing that made the temple so special in the first place was the Ark of the Covenant, where the presence of God was, where it dwelt, where it sat. And the Ark of the Covenant went missing before the exile, and they never found it again to this day. And so even though they rebuilt the temple, it didn't have what it had before, the presence of God. It was just no more than a synagogue. It was no more than a house of worship like the one we're in right now. But God had a plan. They went back home and into their city, but they didn't have true freedom. They were subjects to Persia and then to Greece under Alexander and then to Rome under Pompey. But there was a reason God had answered their prayers this way. They couldn't see it, but he had a plan. In fact, many of them would never know why God answered their prayers the way he did. But hundreds of years later, God didn't send the ark back to the temple because instead his plan was to send his presence and his Holy Spirit to live inside each and every one of us, which is better than in a building. And they didn't know it, but because they lived in this conquered land, it was easier for new conquerors to move in. And when the Romans came, they did something new. They established a system of roadways for communication to go out across the entire known world. And it was this system of roadways that made it possible for Christianity to spread across the entire world the way that it did. The good news got out because of the culture they lived in. Now the people who returned home to a Jerusalem that wasn't the Jerusalem their fathers had told them about would never know why God didn't answer their prayer the way they asked Him to. But God had a plan and His plan was good. Now listen. God may not answer your prayers the way you want Him to answer your prayers. And you may never know why. But you have got to trust that God is good, that He is faithful, that He answers prayer, that He has a plan, and that His plan is good. And that even when you can't see it, He is working, and even while you are waiting, He is working, and even when you don't know if the outcome is going to be good, it is going to be good, and even if it's not good for you, it's still going to be good. You've got to trust that God is good and that He is always good, even when you can't tell Him. You've got to trust God, you've got to have faith, and you've got to keep praying. When you don't hear the answer, keep praying. When the answer isn't what you wanted, keep praying praying. Keep asking God. Don't give up. Don't stop. Three things and then I'm all done. First, follow through in your prayers. Follow through in your prayers. 21 days is what we asked you for. And maybe you went through those 21 days faithfully and you prayed every single day for this thing, for this breakthrough, for this healing, for this freedom, and you didn't hear an answer to that prayer. And so you just gave up after 21 days. But I want you to know that 21 days was our idea. We felt moved by God to do it, but we feel like God wants you to pray for more than 21 days. You've got to follow through in prayer. Just because you haven't got the answer in the time frame you said you wanted it in doesn't mean you need to stop praying for the things that you desire. 
You've got to follow through in prayer. I, I believe in it, it, sometimes it's important to pray from your knees and believe God will do it. And I believe that sometimes it's important to pray from your feet and do some work in the natural before God shows up in the supernatural. Now here's the thing about that. When you pray from your feet, a lot of times, if you're not seeing God show up, or even if you are, you're starting to see some results, then maybe you stop praying because you think, you know what, I've got this. I'm doing okay. Things are working out. I'm working hard. I'm seeing results. And we stop praying. I want you to follow through in prayer. Believe that the, sa- the supernatural precedes the natural. That, that, that we don't just stop praying because we're seeing some results from our work. We don't, want, we don't want to ever believe that our work isn't blessed by God's work. And so we want to follow through in prayer. Follow through in prayer. I've got a memory verse for you this morning. It's very difficult. You're going to like it. It's First Thessalonians. I've even done the NLT version for you, so it's easier to remember. First Thessalonians 5.17 says this. Never stop praying. Say it with me. Never stop praying. You've already rememberized it. Good job, everybody. Never stop praying. Follow through in prayer. Second thing is this. Have faith. Have faith. Listen closely to me here, church. God answers prayers. He hears you. He has a plan. Trust him and have faith. Even when it's hard to have faith, have faith. Jesus says in Mark chapter 11, verse 24, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Pray in faith. Believe he will answer and he will answer. Maybe not when you want. Maybe not how you want. Maybe not always what you want. But he will answer. Maybe you think that if God would just tell you how and when he would answer this prayer, you'd be okay with waiting. Maybe in the same way that I just got to know the ending of every book and movie in my life, you just think, if I could just know the outcome of these prayers, I could wait longer. But even if God told you the whole plan, odds are you would miss it. You see, God told the Israelites he would answer this prayer, but they missed it. And God didn't just give them the answers they were crying out for once. He did it twice. Six years before they were exiled in Judah, he gave them this prophecy through Jeremiah. Many of them ignored that prophecy. But a hundred years before Jeremiah was born, 60 years before Jeremiah was born, a hundred years before Cyrus was, was born, Isaiah gave the same prophecy and was even more specific. Look at Isaiah chapter 45. Verses 1 through 3. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of, to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that gates will not shut. I will go before you and will level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze and will cut through bars of iron. In prophecy, God is saying, I'm going to use Cyrus and I'm going to do for you things you can't do for yourself. I'm going to tear down the mountains that are keeping you from the answers you've been crying out for. Trust in me. I'm going to use Cyrus and I'm going to do what you didn't know I could do. It says, I will go before you and level the mountains. I will give you hidden treasures Riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. In verse 12, it is I who made the earth and created mankind on it. My own hands stretched out to the heavens. I marshaled their starry hosts. I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make his ways straight, 
and he will rebuild my city and set my exiles free, but not for a price or reward, says the Lord God Almighty. God told them he was going to do it. He told them who was going to do it. But how many of them do you think, when they heard that it had, when, when they got to be about 70 years in, were saying, all right, we should be, we got about three months left on this thing. You guys good? Everybody getting everything ready to go? How many of them do you think, when they heard Cyrus was the new king of Persia, started looking for the suitcase? Where was my suitcase again? Cyrus is king. We're going home soon. Let's get packed up. I will tell you how many, uh, because at the end of Daniel's life, this is around year 65. They should have been getting excited about this. The king, the first king of Persia, issued a decree that nobody was allowed to pray to anyone but him. Daniel disobeyed this law, kept praying to God because he believed the prophecies. He knew God was going to deliver him soon. They took Daniel and they threw him in a lion's den to be eaten by the lions for disobeying this law. Guess how many people were in the den with Daniel? Nobody. You see, they had given up on these prophecies. They didn't believe it anymore. The same thing happened to Jesus. Mark chapter 8, verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. And he spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Jesus quit talking so crazy. They had an argument about it. Now, you would think that when Jesus really was killed, like he said he would be at least four different times, Peter would remember this argument and go, oh, oh, guys, guys, it's okay. He told me about this. He even, he even rebuked me. We just got to wait three days and he'll be alive again. You would think that Peter would have a camp chair folded out in front of the grave on Sunday, counting down 10, 9, 8, 7, 6. That's not what happened. Peter was hiding out of fear on the third day. See, Jesus told him how it was going to end, and he didn't believe him. See, here's just the point I want to make, is that even if you knew the ending, you would still be unsatisfied. You've got to learn to have faith and to trust God and to believe that he is good and to believe that the outcome will be good. Because if it's not good, God's not done yet. We have to trust God even when we don't know what he's doing. We have to keep praying even when we can't understand how this outcome could ever be good. 1 John 5, 14 through 15 says, This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have, we know that we have what we have asked of him. And since we don't know what God's will is, we need to pray and ask as though whatever we're praying for is God's will. And I believe as you grow closer to God, you get better discernment over what those things are. Here's how to grow closer. John 15, 7. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Keep praying. Keep praying. Have faith. Believe. Remain in him and allow his words to remain in you. And Psalm 37, 4 says, Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Keep praying. Have faith. Get closer to God, and your prayers will get closer to his desires for you. And if he doesn't answer the way you want, trust 
God. Last thing is this. Thank God for his answer. Even if you haven't received it yet, thank God for his answer. We were created to worship, to praise him. It's the purpose of your creation, to glorify God and serve others. And when you do those two things, you'll find greater satisfaction than you will in anything that this world says you would find satisfaction in. You were created to worship him. So even in your hardest moments of prayer, when you can't see how there will be an answer that is good, praise God and thank him for his answer. Lord, I don't know how this is going to turn out. I can't see how there'll be a good day to come from this, but God, thank you for hearing my cries. Thank you for your answers. In this season of prayer that I was in early in my faith, where I was begging God to deliver me from this depression, I remember being frustrated. Just thinking, God, I've given you every part of my life. I'm pursuing you. Why do I still have this brokenness in me that I had before? And I felt like one of the answers I heard from God that wasn't the answer I wanted was just to stop, take a look around, see what I am doing. And I began to realize that a lot of good things were happening in my life. In fact, in that first year of my faith, some of the greatest things happened to me. Truly amazing things God was doing around me. He hadn't answered that one specific prayer yet. But if I hadn't stopped and said, God, I believe you, I trust you, I will wait for you, I would have missed these good things he was doing in my life and around me. And, and so I just kept praying for it. God, deliver me from this. I kept working towards it. What's causing this? What, what's hurt inside me? I kept bringing people in. I'm, hey, man, this is what I'm struggling with. Help me. Encourage me. Pray with me. And I kept praying. And I kept praying. And I never gave up. And I kept praying. And I trusted that if it wasn't good, he wasn't done yet. And I kept praying and I kept praying. And I looked around and I saw that God was doing good things here and doing good things here. So I praised him and I praised his name and I thanked him for his answers. And I just kept praying and I just kept praying. And in almost exactly a year after I gave my life to Jesus, I've been praying this prayer. It wasn't 21 days. Almost a year later, I remember I woke up one morning, kind of got into my, my routine of praying for deliverance from this this brokenness and I remember all of a sudden I just maybe it it had happened over a long period of time but this day I remember it I woke up and I thought I'm whole I'm whole I mean I just feel I feel joy I feel hope I feel peace and I've had some anxiety since then life can be difficult but that was the last time that I felt nothing and broken and that crippling depression he healed me of it And I just want you to know that whatever you're dealing with, whatever you're struggling with, whatever answers you're not hearing yet, keep praying. Just pray until something happens. Believe that God is listening. Believe that he cares for you. Believe that his outcomes are good for you. Believe that he believes in you. Believe that what he wants for you is even better than what you want for yourself. Believe that the dreams he has for you are even bigger than the dreams he has for yourself. And don't give up and don't quit praying. Don't give up. Don't go through it alone, whatever it is. Whatever things you're begging God for, bring your community in. There's power when we pray together. The Spirit is powerful when we pray together. Bring somebody around you and allow somebody to pray with you and thank God for what He's doing in your life and thank Him for what He's going to do. 
Keep praying. Whatever season you're in. David in Psalm 27, he writes this psalm and he's begging God to deliver him from these oppressing armies that are surrounding his city on all sides. He is certain he will not survive it. He is terrified. He is asking God to do things like break people's teeth. That's a desperate prayer. But he gets to the end of it. And in verse 13 and 14, he says this. But I remain confident of this. I will see goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Listen to me, church. Remain confident that you will see the goodness of the Lord while you are in the land of the living. You will see the goodness of the Lord. And it says, wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Make that your prayer. Make that your battle cry. Make that every morning when you wake up. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Take heart. And wait for the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness, God. We thank you that you are good yesterday and today and tomorrow. God, we thank you that your plan is good. We thank you that you, that you have a plan of redemption in mind for this world, God. And even when we can't see it, and even when it feels dark and when it feels broken and it feels hopeless, God, we believe that you are hope and that you are goodness and that you are waiting for us and that we will see your goodness while we are in the land of the living. God, we are confident that you will show up for us. And so, God, we push in and we press on and we just keep asking and we just keep waiting and we just have faith and we trust in you, God. Lord, I just pray this morning for deliverance for somebody. For, for, for a breakthrough for somebody, God. I ask that you would heal somebody in this room today, Father. God, right here in this place, God, I ask for hope for those who are hopeless. I ask for healing for those who are broken. I ask for, for, for just an answer, God, for those who are crying out. But God, we will wait for you. We will wait for your time. We will wait for your plan. We will wait because you are good. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.